Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. You'll find that on page 1001 if you're using the church Bible. And uh, it's not very often that we start a new book here at New Covenant, so I'm particularly excited that we are starting a new book at the new year. And this, if you asked me what my favorite book in the Bible is, Hebrews is my favorite book in the Bible. I think it is a book that most of you will probably be less familiar with than uh, letters like Romans and Ephesians and Colossians, and yet... Um, arguably the most important book in the New Testament in that it is the key that unlocks the two testaments and really shows you how the Bible works together. It answers so many questions and um, establishes God's people so clearly on Jesus. It is full of Christology. Um, One writer has said that it's nosebleed Christology. There's so much Christ in Hebrews, it's nosebleed Christology. And so Um, I'm excited about us starting in on this, and I want to invite you to turn there to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to look this morning at the first three verses, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. And before we do, let's pray and ask God to bless as we enter in on this this morning. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you are a God who speaks, and that you are a God who has revealed yourself, that you have made yourself known. through prophets and apostles and preeminently in your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the great prophet of the church and that when your word is preached faithfully, that the scriptures say that you are speaking and that you come and you preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would cause us to hear this morning. We pray that you would speak, Lord, for your servants here. We pray that you would change us and that you would sanctify us and wash us and build us up in the truth, that you would give us a love for the truth, that you would open the eyes of hearts that the men and women here can understand the truth in spiritual discernment and not just in intellectual understanding. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do a great work of redemption in our midst as we study your word and as it's proclaimed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 1, we're looking at verses 1 through 3. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by, or probably better, in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, and literally it's the exact image of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, it's interesting, of all the letters that we have in the New Testament, this is the only letter that we don't know who wrote it. And that's important because whenever we look at biblical interpretation, whenever we come to study the scriptures and say, what does this this mean? 
one of the big interpretive principles we have is that we need to know the author. We need to know something about the author. Who was it that wrote this? Who was it? What was his intention? Why was he writing it? To whom was he writing it? And, and as we start to answer those questions, we get insight into the text. We understand better what the scripture is saying. And one of the things that hits us when we come to the book of Hebrews is that the author is never named. Now, I'm aware that the Puritans and the majority of um, theologians in the history of the Reformation have attributed Paul as the author of this letter. In fact, the King James Version says the letter of Paul to the Hebrews. And I'm sorry if I let anybody down, but the letter of Paul, of Paul, is not in the Greek. Paul is not said to have written this. There's no introduction. There's no greeting like Paul's typical argument. And so there's been all kinds of authors, all kinds of um, proposed uh, authorship. Some people think Barnabas wrote it. Some people think Apollos wrote it. Other people think Luke wrote it. Some people think Paul wrote it in collaboration with Peter or other apostles. And, and there's clues as we read the book of Hebrews, little things surface that say, well, no, it couldn't have been this person. I mean, Paul said he was taught by Jesus. The writer of this book says he was taught by those who heard Jesus. And, and so that seems to eliminate the possibility of Paul being the author. And, and then other little clues in the book that seem to intimate because of the Greek style that maybe it was Apollos or someone with excellent Alexandrian Greek, so different than the rest of the New Testament. And yet, the really striking thing about this book is that I don't believe we're supposed to know who the author was. It's interesting, too, that the book opens with these words, God has spoken. God has spoken. I think a very striking thing that emerges as you read through this book and you see the way the Old Testament is quoted in the book of Hebrews is almost all of the introductions are focused on the divine authorship. The Holy Spirit says, God says, the Holy Spirit has spoken in this way. The Spirit says, he says, God speaks, God has said. And so I think that as we come to this book, we start to realize that this book is emphasizing the divine inspiration of scripture. Now this morning, as we come in on an introduction of this, I wanna talk just a little bit about the audience and some of the problems in this book before we look at the first three verses. When we come to talk about the audience, we don't know who the author was. We, we, again, get clues about the audience, that the audience is probably Jewish converts to Christianity. The book was probably written before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, before the temple's done. And we know that because one of the main problems the book's addressing is that there is a threat to these new believers that they might go back to Judaism, that they might go back to the ceremonial ritual things, they might go back to temple worship, they might go back to the sacrificial system, they might go back to all those things that were done away with when Jesus came. And that's that's the big danger. They're in danger of leaving Jesus. The book is being written to a people to call them to persevere in faith in Jesus, to understand all that they have in him, to get that he is supreme, that he is central, that he has fulfilled all things, that all those things were shadows in the Old Testament and that he is the reality, that Jesus Christ is the substance of everything, that he has realized in himself everything, that he is exalted and that he is better than everything. And the argument in this book is going to go basically that Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets, that he's better than the angels, that he's better than Moses, that he's better than Joshua, that he's better than the priest, that he gives a better rest, that he brings a better covenant, that he is a better sacrifice, and he prepares a better city for the people of God. 
And the point is, Jesus is better. And if Jesus is better, the betterness of Jesus ought to keep you close to Jesus. And it ought to keep you from departing from Jesus. And so at the, the, the very foundation of this book is a call to persevere in faith in Jesus, to abide in the gospel, to continue listening to what God has spoken about his son who has offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for sins so that you might be accepted and forgiven and reconciled to God, that you might have access to God, that you might have a great high priest in Jesus Christ who, though he was tempted in every point, even as we are, yet he has no sin. Now, that's going to become a centerpiece in this book, the priesthood of Jesus. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king of his church. He is all those things to us. And the book of Hebrews says that in a sense, the most important thing that you need to know about Jesus and the most important thing that you need to believe and act on about Jesus is that he is your great high priest because everybody needs a priest. You need a priest. You need a priest. I don't know if you've ever thought, I need a priest. A Christian is somebody who says, I need a priest, and the Bible is something that says you have a priest in Jesus. God has given us a great high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice for sins and who ever lives to make intercession for us. And that's important because that priest has secured an inheritance in glory. And that's important because the people to whom the author is writing were people who were suffering. Now, the author will say you have not yet resisted sin unto bloodshed. They were not being murdered like some of their brethren were for the testimony of Jesus. But in chapter 10, he says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, that these were Christians who had lost some of their possessions. They had had uh, the Roman government come and take away their possessions for being Christians. They knew what it was to suffer. And part of the danger was that they might depart from Jesus so that they would not suffer. That's always the danger. You and I are always in danger of departing from Jesus so that we don't get the reproach of the world. There's one reason why you and I don't love and know and serve Jesus more fully. It's because we love the world too much and we fear the world too much. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't fear the world. You have an inheritance. You have a high priest. You have a better city. You, you are pilgrims journeying to something better because Jesus is better. Press on. Hold fast. Don't lose your confidence. Begin. Finish what you have begun. And so the whole book is being written to a people who, though in a very different setting than we find ourselves, are nevertheless people who have the same weaknesses as we do. And so it's going to be important for us to see all of the theology. And this is a book of theology. If you don't like theology, you're not going to like this sermon series. This is a book of theology because theology is what grounds us in Jesus, the truth of him. Well, notice that when the writer opens this, he, he burst in. Some people believe this was actually a sermon. I think there's strong arguments for that. This may be the, the only transcribed full-length sermon we have from the New Testament that was preached to a congregation gathered together on the Lord's Day. There's a lot of stuff in there about worship and being gathered together, and it, it does kind of make sense that this would be a sermon. That would account for why there's no introduction, why there's no greeting, why there's no addressing the people to whom it's being written. But the writer burst in and he says, 
God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. God has spoken. We have a God who speaks. That's, that's crucial to Christianity. We have a God who has revealed himself. You know, I like to say to unbelievers who want to argue against Christianity, I, I say, and, and always they want to undermine scripture as God's word. God, how do you know God gave that God? You can't know if God would give that, and you can't know this. I say, well, if you were God, you would want everyone to know who you were. I mean, you're not God, and you want everybody to know who you are. <laughs> Fair enough? So if you created the world, and you manifested your glory in creation, and you display the riches of your glory in the world around us, and you magnify yourself in all that you made, why would you not reveal yourself? Why would you not speak to the creatures you made? Why would you not, as the personal God of the universe, make yourself known to them? And the whole point of the scripture and the point of this book, which is the greatest commentary on the Bible itself, as the living God, word of God says, God has spoken. God has spoken. And that means that men are to listen. And I think that as you trace the themes of this book, you start to see that's one of the common calls to you in a call to persevere is if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart in unbelief and turning away from the living God. Today, if you hear his voice, God has spoken. Do you hear him? If you've heard him, don't harden your hearts. The word of God is living and active. The written word is alive. God still speaks. The Holy Spirit still says. God still reveals himself to us. Do not harden your hearts. And the writer of Hebrews then tells us a little bit about the doctrine of Revelation. He says, God at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, but now in these last days has spoken to us by his son. Now what he's doing is he's giving you a whole redemptive history. He's saying God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden, and then he spoke through different individuals, oral tradition being passed down, and then he spoke to Abraham, and he called Abraham out, and then at different times he came and he spoke, and then he came to Moses, and it was at the Mosaic period that God says, now write this down. Write down the revelation. Write down my words. And at various times and in various ways, God spoke and he revealed a little bit of his truth and a little more of his truth and a little more of his truth for his people so that they could know him. And that truth was compiled in the scriptures of the Old Testament and been given to us as the recipients of it. And then he says that God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days... He's spoken to us by his son. Now he says there is a final epoch. There is a final period, the gospel age. The period we now live in is the gospel age. Do you realize how enormous it is that you live in the period of the fulfilled revelation of God? There are no more apostles or prophets. Do not look for words from God outside of scripture. God has spoken in these last days. Now, that's a little phrase. People always say to me, I, I can't help but think we're in the last days. And I just want to say, well, yeah, I mean, the scripture says we've been in the last days since Jesus came. In these last days, first century, messianic age, Jesus has come. Last days, the ends of the ages have come. Jesus has brought the end time with him in his first coming. And he brought the final revelation of God with him. He brought the full revelation. He and the apostles who wrote about him and interpreted him to us, 
They brought the full revelation of God. You have everything. You have it all in the scriptures. And I think if we really believe that, and we really understood the magnitude of that, we would take our Bibles off of our coffee tables and our shelves, and we would read them and get it in our hearts. Because we would realize the greatness of the revelation of the God who speaks in Christ to us. And he spoke in prophets. They were men just like us. They were fallen and sinful. God inspired his word. He protected them from error. He revealed himself. But then God, in a sense, said, this is insufficient. I will come myself and I will speak to them in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is God manifested in the flesh and he's greater than the prophets. And the prophets said, thus says the Lord. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, God stood and revealed God. God revealed God to us. And if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what the God who speaks is like, you look at Jesus and you say, that's God. Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. That Jesus is the full revelation. Jesus explains God because he comes from God because he is God. Because God in these last days has spoken in his Son. And I think there's also a contrast here between the Old and the New Testament. While there is also continuity, the Hebrews are in danger of going to a perverted form of what the Old Testament taught. They're they're in danger of going to Judaism, which was a perverted form of what the Old Testament taught. But they're they're in danger of going to Judaism. And, And what the writer is saying is God, in many times, in many ways, in the Old Testament spoke Revelation, but now he's giving you the fullness of revelation in the gospel. The promises were given, the shadows, the types, all of those preparatory things, but now the fulfillment of everything in Jesus. Why would you go back? There's actually an account in scripture that that magnifies this. It's the transfiguration. Jesus goes up on the mountain. He takes Peter, James, and John. Moses and Elijah show up. They're two of the prophets that God spoke through, and they show up. They're from the Old Testament. Peter, James, and John are going to be apostles. They're with him on the mountain. And Peter wants to make three tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He wants to put them all on par. And, and the Holy Spirit says he didn't know what he said. He shouldn't have said that. It was foolish. And then the cloud of glory comes, and God the Father speaks, and he says, this is my son. Listen to him. And then they find Jesus alone. And what that account is teaching is what Hebrews 1 is teaching, that once the Son has come and the Son has spoken, all that was preparatory and anticipatory of the Old Testament is fulfilled in him. And so as we read all that, we read it in light of him, and we read it as preparing us for him, and we read him as the absolute authority. It doesn't mean we read the four Gospels and nothing else. It means we read the whole Bible in light of Jesus. And... I think in that sense, while there is an emphasis on the old and the new covenant being contrasted, there is also continuity. It's the same God that speaks. You know, there are multitudes of people that say, I don't want the God of the Old Testament, but I'll take the God of the new. It's the same God. It's the same God. The God of the Old Testament is not a God of wrath, and the God of the new is not just a God of grace. The God of the old is a God of wrath and grace. The God of the new is a God of wrath and grace. It's the same God. It's the same God. We're going to see that all through this book. It's the same Christ, the same God, the same gospel, the same law, the same promises, the same house. It's one house, Israel and the new covenant church, and it's the same God who is speaking. And that means that Christianity didn't start 
when Jesus was born. That means Christianity started with God, and it started in the garden, and it started when God spoke to Adam and Eve, and it started after the fall with that first great promise of Genesis 3.15, and that means that Christianity is as old as the garden. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us, is that while God spoke through prophets in different ways and and in different manners, sometimes through dreams, sometimes through visions, sometimes directly, sometimes um, through a dumb donkey speaking, while God revealed things in different ways and at different times, yet it is the same God who was speaking and he has spoken authoritatively and finally in his son, Jesus. Now, I think the question we have to ask right now is, do I believe that the scriptures are the word of God and that what the writer of Hebrews is saying in verse 1 is what I need? Do I know that I need God's word? Do I know that I need God's word? Um, Do I long to hear God's word? It was John Murray who said in a sermon once, and it really struck me as a young Christian, he said, if... If someone said, you know, at such and such a time, in such and such a place, out in this field, in such and such an area, there's going to be an audible voice, and you're going to hear God speak, I imagine, Murray says, loads of people would go out there. I mean, look, these are the same people looking for the Mayan apocalypse. They would go out there just to hear an audible voice in a field somewhere, and the Bible says every time the scripture is read, It is God who is speaking. It is the living word. It is the living Christ. God has spoken, and now he speaks in these last days to us. And then, secondly, he tells us about the Christ through whom he speaks. What makes this Christ, what makes this son so worthy? What makes him so qualified to be God's final revelation? Lots of people claim to have revelations from God. Any one of you could rise up and say, I have a revelation from God. Any one of you could rise up and say, I'm God's prophet. Lots of men have done that. Lots of false prophets have risen up. What makes Jesus so qualified to be the final word of God? And what the apostle tells us is, well, number one, he's heir of all things. Number two, he created the world. Number three, he's the brightness of God's glory and the exact image of his person. Number four, he upholds everything by the word of his power. And number five, he by himself made purification of our sins. And so whether it is creation providence or redemption, Jesus has done everything by himself, in himself. The son who speaks is the son who creates. The son who speaks is the son who uh, uh, controls all things and, and controls providence and the destinies of men and the details of life and the atoms and the molecules and every event and every single element of life the son carries along by the word of his power. And then The greatest, perhaps, he came by himself to purify our sins. By himself. He didn't have any help to do what you needed most. What you needed most, you didn't help Jesus with at all, and no one helped him. He by himself made purification of our sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's interesting, which we had time, we could preach a sermon in each of these, that first we're told that he's heir of all things. That this son is one day going to get everything that God has. 
He's going to possess the universe. He's going to get everything. He gets a limitless inheritance. And that means the inheritance that you'll read about in chapter 11, because you're going to read about an inheritance for you in chapter 11, if you're in Christ, that's yours because it's his. And you're, you're assured that even if your worldly possessions are taken away, as the Hebrews were, your heavenly inheritance will never be taken away because Jesus inherits everything. And so the Jesus we believe in and trust is the Jesus that inherits everything, and that Jesus is our inheritance, and that Jesus will lavish that inheritance on us, and that makes Jesus worthy of being listened to and believed on and followed. That makes him worthy. Have you ever thought about this? The, the greater someone's status or ability is, the more worthy they are of attention. I think that's fair to say in life. I think about a Thomas Edison, the things these, this, this man did. He's worthy of the name he has. He's worthy of receiving the honor that he has. Well, Jesus is going to inherit everything. Jesus, then, we're told, created the ages. Notice what he says. He says, he appointed him heir of all things, through whom also he created the ages. In Greek, it's the ages. That means whether the ages now or the ages to come, whatever created things have been created, Jesus created them. And that the Jesus that stood and walked from Nazareth all through Israel and the Jesus who walked by the sea and the Jesus who called the disciples and the Jesus who worked miracles and taught and the Jesus who hung on the cross for the sins of his people is the Jesus that created everything. He created you. He created you. He created everything. And that makes him worthy to be listened to as God's final spokesman and prophet. And then notice that the apostle says, he is the brightness of God's glory and the exact image of his person. He is God. He is God appearing to God. He is God appearing to himself. The Son is equal with the Father in every way. He is the exact image, the stamp, the press. He is the perfect divine image of God. Jesus and him alone is the perfect divine image, the very substance and essence of deity. And I think, I think that the writer of Hebrews says all this in part because Jesus was a man. No, it's actually easy to believe that Jesus was a man. That's not the hard part. The hard part is to believe what the writer of Hebrews says, that he was very God of very God, that he was the God-man, that he was Yahweh. He was the God who spoke, and he came in the flesh, and he is the brightness of God's glory. Again, the transfiguration. For a moment, his face shone like the sun. In the midst of that hot Palestinian heat, that noon brightness, Jesus outshone the sun because that was his divine glory. He is the radiance, the effulgence, the brightness of the glory of God. And then we're told that he carries along the universe by the word of his power. I think that there is so much there to ponder. We ask, why is this happening in my life? Why is that happening? Where's God? You know where God is? God is carrying everything along by the word of his power. He is seated on the throne in the center of the universe, and he is controlling and ordering and governing all things, even the things you don't like, even the actions of the devil. Jesus 
upholds everything because he created everything. And one day, that Jesus is going to have every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And one day you're going to see how all the pieces fit together and what he was doing and all of his secret will that we don't know about now. But what we can be sure of is that he carries along everything by the word of his power. And then, finally, and as I've mentioned most significantly, it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. No, it's interesting. Again, I want to note that just as Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 about the gospel, he doesn't mention the teaching of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus. He doesn't mention all those things. What he says is that Jesus came from glory, entered this world, and made purification for our sins and went back to glory. Do you see that? He came from glory. He made purification of our sins, and he went back to glory. And what the writer is telling us is that at the center of the Christian message and the Christian gospel is that Jesus came to purge your sin. And that the biggest thing you need is the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of sins. And, and the point of the book of Hebrews is, do you believe in that Christ? Do you believe in the Christ who says he has given himself once for all as a sacrifice for sin? Do you believe that you need the forgiveness of sins? Are you repenting of sins? Are you trusting him for the forgiveness of your sins? That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews, is that we have a sacrifice that surpasses all the sacrifices that Israel had. We have an inheritance that surpasses any inheritance you could ever imagine. We have more than we could ever imagine in Jesus Christ. Why would we ever depart from him? Now, I want to talk to you on an experiential level. You may say, I'm not departing from Jesus. I'm, I come to church and, you know, it's the heart that God cares about. Are you trusting Jesus in your heart? Do you believe in him inside you? Not, not just in your mind. Do you know him? Do you commune with him? Do you love him? Do you see his glory? Do you see the radiance of his glory? Do you see his beauty? Do you see his excellency? Do you see his supremacy? Do you delight to talk about him and tell others about him? Or does it feel like a constrictive thing? Oh, Jesus, I've got to go hear about Jesus. The soul who knows their need for Jesus is the soul that loves hearing about him. This whole book is about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. We're going to see over the months ahead so many amazing and wonderful aspects of him his life and his work for us and for our redemption. I hope that this will encourage you as we set off on it. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do ask you to show us more of the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have spoken in these last days through him and in him and that he is the final revealer. We thank you that he is our prophet, priest, and king. We, we bless you, Father, that you have spoken and that every time your word is read and proclaimed, you are speaking. And we pray that you would make us hungry to hear and to believe and to rest in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would draw near to us. We pray that you would give us a greater sense of our need for the forgiveness of sins and 
Father, we pray that you would help us to cherish and love Christ more and delight in him and sing his praises and witness to him. And we pray, Father, that you would establish us um, by grace in the one who made all things and governs all things and redeems us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.